Genesis chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. The scripture reads, Then the rib which the Lord had taken from man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man, and Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And turn also to Matthew, chapter 19, and we'll read verses 4 and 6. Matthew, chapter 19, verses 4 and 6. And the scripture reads, And he, talking about Jesus, answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. May God bless the reading of his word. The title of my sermon this morning is, What to Look for in Someone to Marry. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, we rejoice in you and give thanks to you for your goodness to us that you have preserved your scriptures so we can know the goodness of marriage and family from them, how you birthed it, how you established it. It's part of your created order. Lord, you see the desire of some to marry, and they want to know what to look for in someone they have an interest in marrying. Lord, I just ask and pray that you help me to set forth that which you've given me to declare this morning and use it for good in their hearts and minds so that they may find the right one and that their union as husband and wife might bring glory to you in the earth. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. could be seated. This sermon isn't going to be comprehensive on this matter, obviously. It's a sermon, not a book. Mind you, this is not a sermon about why we marry. Note that. This is not a sermon about why we marry. I will do my best to not keep going to that area. If you want to learn about those important matters, go to sermonaudio.com. Sermonaudio.com. Type in my name under the quote-unquote speaker button and type in family in the word search, and a whole host of sermons will come up pointing to that matter about why we marry. This is rather a sermon about what to look for in someone to marry. I assume you already know why to marry and that you desire to marry before listening to this sermon. I assume that. The first thing to look for and someone you would like to marry, is their looks. The first thing to look for is their looks. Attraction. You will usually be, though not always, first be attracted to the person by their looks. That is God-given. It is not carnal. It can become carnal. It can even become sinful. But it is not carnal in and of itself. It's a God-given human trait. 
I remember when I was in college, I thought God might want me to marry an ugly girl. There were 2,000 students at this Christian college I was attending, and the girls outnumbered the boys two to one. What an awesome place to attend, right? And yet, during my semester there, I only saw three girls I would have considered for marriage, and one of them was ugly, at least ugly to me. The two others I had seen thought they were pretty, and then I watched and listened while sitting in class. In other words, I had already begun what you look for secondly, which I'll get to next. I also listened to the one I deemed ugly while I was sitting there in class. And then in prayer one day, the thought came to my mind, what if the Lord wants you to marry someone you think is ugly? That's literally a thought that came to my mind while I was in prayer. What if God wants you to marry a girl you think is ugly? I was troubled. Horrified, actually. And looks are not everything by any means, but for men they are usually what first gives us notice when looking for a wife. It's a God-given human trait. Later I had an even more horrifying thought. What if God doesn't want me to marry at all? And that is something every person should consider at some point before they marry. And he will make it clear to you if you are one of the few who are not to marry. Once a woman has caught your eye, or sisters, once a man has caught your eye, you should watch them and listen. No, not become a stalker, but you watch how they behave and how they talk, whether this is at church or doing ministry or at work or whatever the situation may be where you're around her naturally in day-to-day life. Why do we do this? Because we want to know if they truly love Jesus. That's why. And this is the second thing we look for in someone to marry. Once your attention's been grabbed, that is the first thing you look for. Do they love Jesus? My biggest desire was to find a woman who loved Jesus and was serious about serving him. There's many who name his name but aren't serious about him. I saw in Clara straight away that she loved him and was serious about serving him. I saw her and her two sisters at the small church I was attending in Detroit. They all looked attractive. So I began to watch. I would actually peek during worship service, see who showed up at ministry opportunities, especially those out on the streets, as that was my biggest interest. Listen to their conversations, what was important to them. How we behave and speak reveals our heart. And as I watched and listened and saw Clara's love for our Lord, this deepened my attraction to her greatly. So I was attracted to Clara. I thought she was a beautiful woman. And now I ascertain that she loves the Lord truly. And I liked her personality. And this gets into what I call the emotional. There is the physical, you're attracted. There is the spiritual, do they love Jesus? And there's the emotional, do you actually like the person? Get along with them. It goes without saying this is hugely important when it comes to marrying someone. This does not mean they are a clone of you and think just like you, however. Some people actually want a person like that. Okay, that's a myth. That's messed up. But you need to be in agreement 
over some major issues. And you have to actually like the person. These are, these are three foundational matters regarding looking for someone to marry. All three are important, the spiritual, the emotional, and the physical. If things lag in one of these three areas, there will be problems in the marriage. All three areas are important. So when it comes to looking for someone to marry, here's a news flash. It's not that complicated. Okay? It's ingrained in the human psyche. It's part of God's created order for mankind. The exception or the unusual person is the one who doesn't marry. Okay? So it's not that complicated how to look for someone you're interested in marrying. But some people actually construct lists. Some people do construct lists, whether on paper or in their head, of what they want in a spouse. Any list writers here of what they want in a spouse? I note that they are all females. (laughs) Some create their list and put a lot of time into looking for a spouse and still get skunked. Others put very little time into it and hit the jackpot. I was of the latter, putting very little time into it, figuring I would know her when I saw her. But Christ first was my thinking, and all that will work out itself. It was only two weeks after I met Clara that I knew I'm going to marry this woman. I knew it. I began to pursue her. Yes, this was back when men drove and the woman sat in the passenger seat. Back when every male knew they were a male and every female knew they were a female, two genders were assumed and observed. And the male was to take the initiative. So I began to pursue her. I didn't know where to take a girl. Didn't know anything about courtship. Only knew dating. So I invited her to a Christian motorcycle club. (laughs) Sounded interesting to me. Her parents shot that one down. Not going with him. I had hair about a third of the way down my back at that time. Big bell, blue jeans, leather boots, big thick leather belt, all indicia of my age, <laughs> my generation. So I regrouped. I was like, okay, that didn't work. Well, I'll take her to something I despise. I'll take her to an Evie concert. There was this Christian gal named Evie, and one of the worst things for Matchwell is sit around, watch a person sing for two hours. <laughs> it's like... What? But I thought, if it gets me with her, I'm good. And her parents went for it. And so began our year and nine months run-up to our marriage. A good woman will always look for a man who behaves like a man, and a good man will always look for a woman that behaves like a woman. And a feminine man will be a turnoff to a good woman, and a horsey woman will be a turnoff to a good man. By horsey, I mean, you know, she wants to wear the britches. And uh, she's got a big mouth. I mean, if you don't know what I'm talking about, just engage the average person at Piggly Wiggly, the average female at Piggly Wiggly, watch them, or go to the university. It's despicable. It's sad. Chauvinism will sicken a good woman, and feminism will sicken a good man. 
God has given men and women unique roles, duties, and functions, though there is overlap with each. As for these lists, I have met people who have lists. They have crazy expectations on their lists. They are actually looking for non-humans, but they haven't figured that out yet. So they never marry. I have also seen people with lists where they either they meet someone who makes them crazy in the head, so they abandon their list, and people without lists also do this. They meet someone who makes them crazy in the head, they abandon their list, or time has made them so desperate, they lower their expectations just so they can get married. And there's a huge truth here. There have to be strong convictions of what someone should be like who you're going to marry as a Christian man or woman. But there needs to be flexibility, on the other hand, regarding the things that aren't the key matters regarding that, regarding, those, regarding the strong convictions. Opposite of the strong convictions. There needs to be flexibility. Let me give you a list, a list, of some major issues you want to talk about with someone you have interest in marrying. I've always been astounded at how many couples I sat down with who have marriage problems who never discussed these deeply important matters before marriage. I'm also astounded how that, even though some couples did discuss these important matters, one of the individuals will change their perspective drastically after marriage. So let me just give you a short list, of, and there's many more. But these are massively important things to discuss with someone you're interested in marrying. Number one is Jesus. Number one is Jesus. Do you talk about the Lord with the person? Do you read the Bible together? Do you pray together? Do you talk about the things of God? Do you minister together? You should. You need to look well at where they stand theologically also. Because there could be some huge differences that could become problematic after marriage. Before marriage, one is Twitter-pated, so they are not thinking through things as clearly. There's a reason we hunt deer during the rut, right? They're not thinking as clearly at that time. But after marriage, these matters can cause huge problems if there's deep theological differences. Number two is children. How many do you want to have is the question of our culture. A preposterous question to me, but one which most everyone asks or thinks about. Preposterous to me because my answer is, as many as the Lord blesses us with. You would think that children wouldn't be a big issue given the state of our culture. How children and family is suppressed in this culture. You think it wouldn't be a big deal, but it is. In fact, every year it's one of the biggest four troublers of marriage the number of children that a couple wants to have. You believe that? That's true. The others are finances, communication, and sexual relations. Intimacy. Pastors will aid and abet the spouse who wants no more children. They always do in this culture. Because most pastors think just like the world. They don't think biblically. So they aid and abet the spouse. I don't want any more. I could tell you many stories of pastors who said things. Or one pastor said to me, what kind of, the couple had four children, he said to me, what kind of man would ask his wife to have a fifth child? 
What kind of loving husband, he said, would ask his wife to have a fifth child? A, I would feel absurd asking my wife, can we have a child? Okay. And I went home and asked Clara, what do you think about that, hon? In fact, I didn't say what the pastor said. I said to her, Clara, i got to ask you a question. Because we were still breeding at that time. Children being produced. I said, what would you think if I asked you, could we have another child? And Clara looked at me immediately and said, I, I would ask you to quit talking that way and behave like a man. <laughs> I would never expect you to ask me that. <laughs> it's what results at times from our intimacy. Amen? You need to discuss this with someone you're interested in possibly marrying. What is their view of children? What are their thoughts in regards to them? That is so huge. And there's a hundred areas to discuss about children with someone you're interested in marrying. Discipline matters and on down the line. Number three is education. Will you send the children off to the government indoctrination center, known as the public school, or will you homeschool? Or send them to a Christian school? That is huge. Massively big. And I've met couples who agreed on homeschooling or Christian schooling before they were married, and then one of the spouses changed subsequent to that. And the spouse who thinks that it's fine to begin sending the kids off to the government indoctrination center never seems to get how crazy that is to the person who holds their children dear, and talk to you about these things prior to marriage, and we said we were going to homeschool them. They don't seem to get it. Anyway, it's huge. Number four, work. Will the wife work outside the home after children are born? You know what I think about that? Sure, if if you're stupid and insane. Okay, go ahead and do that. This is huge. And number five is finances, also massively huge. Too little money, uh, which is not uncommon among married couples, equals to fights and stress. Too much money equals to, and often ends up in licentiousness. There's 101 questions to ask regarding this matter also about money, because money is what drives most people in America. Who will take care of the money? What will you invest in, if there is any to invest? And one of the crazy things that I find is how many Christian couples have separate bank accounts. And how they view this is my money and this is her money. Okay? You've become one. When we say we become one, we mean literally one in flesh due to the intimacy, but it's also a metaphor. We become one in every way. We are bound together in a marital covenant. It's not your money or my money. It's our money. Understand? There's this massive, it's crazy. And I could give you all kinds of counseling on money and stuff like that, you know, when it comes to, somebody's got to take care of the money, right, in the house. It's not like you have to have a powwow with your spouse every week. What I found overwhelmingly is most people, either the man or the woman, ends up taking care of their money. Either one could do it. I always counsel for the miser to take care of the money and the spendthrift not to. 
A dispenser of stars to be kept up to, up to speed with what's going on with the money, right? But I digress. So anyways, that's just a few. There are many more very important matters you need to spend countless hours talking. How many of you here are married? Okay, so remember back before you were married, how you would sit on the phone? I remember, because this was before cell phones and everybody had their own phone in that world, there was one phone in the Chuella house where Matt Chuella grew up. And once you're interested in a beautiful gal like Clara, guess how much you're, you're spending a lot of time on the phone. And guess what, guess what moms say? Can I use my phone? Are you in here again? Because there was a cord. You could only go so far. Okay? Communication, massively important. And this brings us to two importantly huge matters you want to have your eyes wide open about while all this process is playing out. Number one is communication. How does he or she communicate with you, with others, and with their family members? And that brings us to the second matter, family. How he interacts and communicates with his mother, his father, his siblings reveals a lot. It does. Meeting the family will reveal things about him. Meeting the family will reveal things about him. I'm always stunned by people who marry someone and have never met the other family. But don't make the mistake of deciding about the person only on their family. Did you hear what I said? Don't make the mistake of only of de- don't make the mistake of deciding on the person only on how their family behaves. They are an individual. You have to look at their character, to look at their heart. You have to see do they have some humility? One of the things my wife does, she's like the biggest interrogator of future sons-in-laws, future possible sons-in-laws. Any guy who can endure one of Clara's interrogations, I mean, it goes for hours, literally. Here and there, not all at one sitting, in nice fashion, but yet not talking about, you know, the weather. never ends either after you're married. Correct. <laughs> so, <laughs> that right there, that they can endure that interrogation, tells me volumes about their character. It speaks volumes to me about who they are as a man. Understand, when you marry, the whole family comes with the package. It's not like they're going to be living in your house. But there's familial relationships that you want to engender and keep, or you should. It should be a good thing as an expansion of your family. Not a war developed because of it. This could become hugely important down the road, this matter of the family. If the parents don't agree about the marriage, it can be a strain later. I've talked to people where two years into their marriage, you know, the spouse whose parents or the other one, their in-laws, didn't want them to marry, had doubts about them marrying and all that, 
and now they're doubting about the will of God. Was this God's will that I ever marry? We're not doing good. We're two years into this thing. And I always tell them, yes, it is God's will. Once you say, I do, we're done questioning God's will. This is God's will. (laughs) You are now married. And it's God's will that you be married to this person. So now that you're there, let's get with the program and make sure we have a delightful time as husband and wife, right? Also, if there's problems in the marriage down the road, because people can change and people can get odd and weird. It is good to have good in-laws to help in that situation. If you have in-laws who have a good marriage, they can be massively helpful. And I've seen it go both ways, where the in-laws made all the difference in a young couple's marriage or a younger couple's marriage. And I've also seen it where they helped finish it off, the in-laws. And so it's hugely important, this matter of family. I have a list for my boys. I've mentioned this before in some sermons. So one is I always encourage my sons, and I have a list of very, yeah. So anyway, I always encourage my sons, bring the gal home for dinner at our house so we can see how she behaves. If she doesn't help mom out, kick her to the curb as fast as you can because you, she just told you everything you need to know. Also, take her to the mall and see if like little stars come up before her eyes and she's like lost control, you know? And if she does, kick her to the curb as quickly as you can before there's anything in your heart holding you there. Right? Now, I have a long list, many others, and I have some for my daughters, too. And perhaps one day I'll do a sermon on those things, but some I will always keep private, that I teach my sons and daughters. The most important attribute for a Christian to possess, I know we've been taught it's love. Right? That's the most important attribute. That's huge. It's an important attribute for us to possess. I truly believe the most important one is humility, which the Apostle Peter says we are to clothe ourselves with, is humility. You have no idea how well that helps and works not only in every area of life, but also within the area of marriage. Humility. For those of you looking for a spouse and wondering... Will you ever, will I ever find one? Okay. For those of you in that boat, I want to share with you a little about John Calvin and his looking for a spouse. Can I do that? Even for those non-Calvinists amongst us? Can I talk about John Calvin just briefly? (laughs) So... Calvin was nearly 30 before there is any record in any of his writings that he had any interest in marriage. He was driven theologically. He wrote his institutes. He had already written his institutes at this time. Young guy. The turning point seems to have been after he lived for a while at the home of well-known pastor Martin Butcher, which we've actually taken some of Martin Butcher's old writings from the 1530s and brought them up into the modern English because he was a great pastor and a great theologian. 
So John Calvin spent time at Martin Butcher's home where Martin and his wife Elizabeth resided. And they were known to have a great marriage. And their house was known as the Inn, I-N-N, of Righteousness. The Inn of Righteousness. And they'd regularly have young people stay there and disciple them in the faith. They had a great marriage, and he saw, Calvin saw it, lived out in front of him. He was also influenced by Philip Melanchthon. Remember Martin Luther's protege? Who also had a good marriage. His wife was known to have an awesome sense of humor. Both of them encouraged Calvin to find a wife and to marry when he was 29 years old. Calvin soon did, and he did it like a business endeavor. He began to look for a wife. I'm looking. I know she's out there somewhere. He did it like a business endeavor. He was a list guy. He gave notice to the brethren that he was in the market for a wife and wrote the job qualifications. <laughs> and here's what he wrote. Quote, Always keep in mind what I seek to find in her, for I am none of those insane lovers who embrace also the vices of those with whom they are in love, where they are smitten at first sight with a fine figure. This only is the beauty that allures me, if she is chaste, if not too fussy or fastidious. Fastidious means overly given to detail, always wanting to make sure everything's perfectly clean. Okay. If economical, if patient, if there is hope that she will be interested about my health, period. It's a pretty short list. Not a bad list. He also hoped a wife could help him with his finances, as he never seemed to have a penny to his name. And finally, Calvin was known as somewhat of an irritable man, stern, and he hoped that his impatience and irritability might be softened by marriage. Amen. Now, can I do what you're not supposed to do and read to you from the pulpit about Martin, uh, John Calvin's pursuit of a wife? This author says, a few months later, the first candidate was brought forward. She was a wealthy German woman who had a brother serving as her campaign manager. <laughs> He's hoping this works out. A strong supporter of Calvin, the brother argued that such a marriage would be most beneficial. Calvin had often said that he wished to live the life of a scholar, since royalties from sales of theological books would not provide him much of an income. It would be helpful for him to have a wealthy wife. Calvin had two problems with the first candidate. First, she didn't know French. <laughs> and did not seem eager to learn it, <laughs> which is what he spoke. Secondly, as he explained to Farrell, that's William Farrell, which William Farrell was, was an awesome guy. He was a minister, and he was smart because he always looked for young men who he could see the gift of God in their life, and he did everything he could to help build that up in their life. He was the one who got John Calvin preaching and writing. He was the one who got Pierre Verret preaching and writing. It was William Farrell. So, Calvin had two problems. 
First, she didn't know French and did not seem eager to learn it. Secondly, as he explained to Pharaoh, quote, you understand, William, that she would bring with her a large dowry, and this could be embarrassing to a poor minister like myself. I feel, too, that she might become dissatisfied with her humbler station in life, unquote. Good for him. You might have thought she looks great and everything, and everything else is good, but this is an important point. Could huge, lead to huge problems later. People find it easy to go up in their station of life. <laughs> they find it very difficult to come down in their station of life. Okay. Pharaoh had his own candidate to suggest after the first one didn't work out. She spoke French and was a devout Protestant, but was about 15 years older than Calvin. Calvin never followed up on this one. I laughed. The next candidate spoke French and didn't have any money, but was highly recommended by friends. Calvin seemed interested enough to invite her to Strasbourg for an interview. Calvin again alerted Pharaoh, If it come to pass, as we may certainly hope will be the case, the marriage ceremony will not be delayed beyond the 10th of March. <laughs> so he's really hoping this all works out. The year is now 1540. Calvin is now 31. So he's been in his pursuit for a couple years now. Quote, I wish you might be present that you may bless our wedlock. This is what he wrote to Pharaoh. But then Calvin added, quote, I make myself look very foolish if it shall so happen that my hope again fall through, unquote. And this is where people, it isn't happening quick enough, they lower their standards and they'll take less. But fall through it did. John was now so embarrassed by the entanglements and by his often on-again letters to William Farrell that he wrote, quote, I have not found a wife and frequently hesitate as to whether I ought any more to seek one, unquote. But when he stopped seeking, he found. In his congregation of refugees was a young widow, Idlet de Beer, Storder. She her husband, and their two children had come to Strasbourg as Anabaptists. Listening to John Calvin's faithful exposition of Scripture, they were converted to the Reformed views. John Storter, Idolette's husband, had been an Anabaptist leader, and undoubtedly John Calvin had discussed theological matters with the Storters in their home. In 1537, when Calvin was still in Geneva, Storter had come to that city to debate with the Reformers there. Storter lost the debate, was ordered out of Geneva, and returned to Strasbourg. Undoubtedly, the discussions continued when Calvin arrived in Strasbourg two years later. Eventually, Calvin's use of Scripture convinced the Storters in most of their areas of difference, but not all. In some, perhaps Calvin tempered his own thinking. But soon the Storters were in Calvin's church, partaking of the Lord's Supper, after further discussion, they had their son baptized by Calvin. Eventually, the entire family became members of the church, which now numbered nearly 500 refugees from France and the Low Countries. Then in the spring of 1540, John Storder, stricken with the plague, suddenly died. I'd let grieve for the loss of her husband. John sorrowed for the loss of a friend. It was at this time, 
as John Calvin had almost given up thoughts of marriage because of the string of fiascos that his pastor friend Martin Butcher said to him, quote, why not consider Eilat? John did. Eilat was attractive and intelligent, a woman with culture, apparently from an upper middle class background. She was also a woman of character and quiet strength. They did marry. They were married for nine years until she died of pneumonia. They never had any children. All of their children died in miscarriage. So if you've been looking for a long time for a spouse, or not even looking, but just waiting for God to bring you someone, and it's been a long time, fret not. The Lord will provide, and if not, it means he has something different for you. When you see a possible candidate, know which convictions to never bend on, but also know where to be flexible regarding your preferences so that your own stubbornness or selfishness don't cause you to miss the will of God. None of us are perfect, nor are none of us the same. And thanks be to God for that. The marriage bond teaches us many things, including how to be more accepting of others, have a better perception of our own egos and worth, (laughs) how to relate with people in general. May Christ be glorified in each of our marriages. Let's stand up and we'll close in a word of prayer. Hallelujah, Father. We give thanks and praise to you, O Lord. And we rejoice in you. Lord, for all those of us who are married, we give thanks to you for our spouse. Lord, for all those who are not married, Lord, may they know clearly whether marriage is not for them. And if they know it is for them, and they're waiting, oh God, we ask and pray that in your time, you bring the one for them. And that they would know it in their heart and mind. Lord, we ask and pray that we would all, regardless of our station in life, be faithful to you that we would use the days which you've given us upon this planet to the glory of your name, whether that be in the confines of a family or as someone single. Be glorified, O God. We ask and pray through each life, through each one. And we ask these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Could be seated. And we're going to take communion at this time. So prepare yourself for that. We do observe his table every week at Mercy Seat. And this week is no different. And you can feel free to take communion with us as long as you're a Christian. You're a believer in Christ. If you're not a believer, we ask that you not take communion as the Lord's table is only for those who believe. The Apostle Paul wrote of the Lord's table in 1 Corinthians 11. He said, For I received from the Lord... He received it from the Lord. That which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. At his table, we are remembering his death at Calvary. We should have been put to death for our sins. As the scriptures declare, the wages of sin is death. We should have been put to death. He died in our place, in our stead. So that if we will believe in him, God will forgive us of our sin, and we will obtain right standing with the Father. We will actually be able to have communion with God the Father, meet with him, have fellowship with him, petition him, beseech him. And that is why we call this a great salvation. This covenant is not dependent upon you performing a list of acts in order to obtain right standing. Rather, it's Christ alone that this covenant is dependent upon. What he did when he died on the cross. The good works that you do, the holy living that you display, Those things are the result of our saving faith in Christ. The fruit or the evidence of our faith in Christ. In other words, we don't do those things to try and obtain God's acceptance. Rather, we do them because we have obtained his acceptance. Amen? And that is why we call it a great salvation. Let's pray. We rejoice in you, Lord, and we give thanks to you for your goodness to us. We ask and pray, O Lord, that we would we would live faithfully for, for you in the earth. That as your ambassadors, we would make known your holy law and this great salvation found in your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us in what you've put our hand to do, O Lord. May we not keep this to ourselves. May we declare it to others as you have called upon us to do. Lord, help each one here this week to tell others of you. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's partake together. Hallelujah. Let's stand up and we'll close in a word of prayer. Blessed is your name, O Lord. Worthy is your holy name, O God. We rejoice in you. We give thanks to you. We praise you. And Lord, now as we depart from this place, I ask that your hand be upon each one, that they desire you to read your word, to pray, that you bring it to our minds, O God. Lord, may we see opportunities to present you to a lost, dying, rebellious world. And may we seize upon them May we declare the truth of your word, the greatness of your salvation to men, both out in the marketplace and also may we do right by you in our homes, O God, opening your word, gathering as a family, discussing the things of you from Holy Writ. Be glorified in the lives of each one. Be glorified in each home and family represented here. And we ask these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. God bless you.